welcome to the Forest Creek Podcast. Today we're going to dig into a Marvel product. Dang, a Marvel product. We've come so far, we're already mm-hmm. talking about Marvel. We're doing movie reviews now. Yeah, we've been meaning to do movie reviews for a long time. Uh, last time I brought you in here for kind of a test recording, we started talking about religious films. Right. And I think this is kind of a fun tangent on that. Mm-hmm. Um, because today we're going to talk about Thor Love and Thunder, a Marvel movie, but also in some strange way, kind of a religious film. Yeah, well, actually, I think uh, almost all of Marvel's movies have a very clear kind of religious undertone to them. Pretty much all fairly biblical. Um, You can see a lot of correlations in uh, even the dialogue a lot of times. Well, if you allow me to get into a little bit of background, just kind of lay a bit of a setting. When I was in university, Uh, studying English literature, one of the things that was kind of my focus in study was actually comic books, you know, comic book mythology. Mm. Because comic book mythology is our modern day version of like those stories that you'd hear about the Olympians, for instance, right? In the same way that, you know, ancient Greeks would have sat around and told about the stories of Heracles. We sit around and talk about Captain America Mm. in some sense. They even have to the point where there's like ages of comic books. Yeah. where their stories get more complex and more emotional. And that's actually the same thing with the Greek mythologies. There's different ages in Greek mythology, for instance. Yeah, that's interesting. I was on and off a fan of like things like Batman and stuff, especially as a kid. Just like everyone is, watching the cartoons, you recognize a few of the things here. Sometimes you keep up with one of them. A little bit more, you get to know the, the rogues gallery. But in more so in particular, when I was in senior year high school, I got really into the anthology of Deadpool. I went back all the way from the 90s, which is what would be considered the kind of the Bronze Age of comics, and read from there all of the way through up until the modern day, which at the time was like 2015. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about reading Deadpool, there was like three long series that got taken over by different artists. But the cool thing about reading Deadpool is that he exists in the same world as all of the Marvel heroes do. So... Even though I'm reading the Deadpool story, I'm following Wade Wilson, I'm going through his story, he's still in and out of the big adventure stories, Avenger stories, whether it's the Civil War, whether it's Infinity War, whether it's the battles against Galactus, it's like this tour of the Marvel Universe that you do through this one zany kind of character. Now, we'll get to Thor in a moment, but I actually did pick up a Thor comic back before but one thing i do want to mention when it comes to my knowledge of the marvel comic universe around 2015 there was an event in marvel comics and something similar actually happened to dc comics that was basically like a wide-scale reboot of all of the comic universe they called it the incursion event interesting to put it shortly basically it was this event where all of the parallel universes that existed in the marvel universe started to crash into each other to the point where the Earths from different universes were literally right. colliding. So it's like the ultimate, it's like the ultimate crossover. Yeah, all these different characters, all these different storylines converging. Well, to kind of put it into perspective, when I was reading, I actually still have it. Um, the end of that Deadpool run ends with him just on a boat. End of one of his stories, just like always, and then he looks up into the sky, and there's another Earth crashing into his Earth, and everybody dies. And that actually happened across a number of different comic series, because that's how the incursion event happened. The only characters to survive the incursion events were funny enough, there was like a couple Spider-Men, there was some of the Fantastic Four, a few key heroes here and there, but there was like a handful. 
and everybody else got rebooted into the new universe. That's more or less where I stopped reading, and that's also around the time when uh, the corporate influence into Marvel Comics became a little bit overt. Mm-hmm. You started to get heroes like Safe Space and Snowflake. Yeah. That series crashed and burned really hard. But another thing that they did, and this is something that's actually a little bit reflected in this film, uh, Thor Love and Thunder, which we'll go into again in a moment. Thor in the new universe is a woman. Oh. Yeah. It's a, there's a lady Thor running around. The old Thor, at least from a graphic novel that I picked up, I'm not sure if this is consistent, but mm-hmm. he's very much on this journey of self-rediscovery. Oh, okay. Yeah. He is no longer worthy to hold Mjolnir in the comics. Right. Okay. And in fact, he does go into wielding an axe, although it's not necessarily Stormbreaker, at least not in the graphic novel that I read. Mm-hmm. Again, I might be at a pace with this. But that's kind of um, cohesive with the film we just watched. So we saw Thor Love and Thunder. It's technically the fourth Thor film in this Marvel Universe, Mm -hmm. starring Chris Hemsworth. The first one, of course, Thor. The second one, Thor The Dark World, that was so bad that nobody talked about it. Then there is Thor Ragnarok, and that's when Taika Waititi as a director stepped in. Right, right. And then this is the reprisal of that. Thor Love and Thunder is, again, Taika Waititi. We were talking about a little bit earlier as the film was starting, uh, and I think you picked up on this quite early on, was that it's very silly. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I mean, Marvel movies in general, they have a lot of gags, a lot of humor, and Taika Waititi, he's like a, he's a comic, I think, right? So he's kind of known for doing comedies. I think his last, he did the, uh, that like, what was it called? That rabbit or something The kind of feels like. Jojo Rabbit, Jojo Rabbit, which yeah. was a fantastic film. I, I haven't love it. seen it. That's another thing. We should probably rewatch that. You, me, and Jared reviewed that. But he did Jojo Rabbit. He did Free Guy with Ryan Reynolds, right? Yeah. Um, which was one where a guy gets sucked is a video game character who comes to life or something. Yeah, Taika Waititi. He's like known for for doing comedies. He's a he's a funny guy. Um, he, but I mean, most of the humor actually didn't really hit for me in the film. I'll be honest. It was actually like the opening of the film was. It's great. I was I was there. It's uh, you get introduced to the villain. Well, before we jump into that, actually, I'm curious. You saw Ragnarok. Yeah. What did you think of Ragnarok? Uh, I'm trying to remember now. It's been a while. Um, I think I remember. I think I remember liking it. I was I was like it was decent. It's a fun time. I mean, the thing is, Marvel is so big at this point that they've actually become their own genre. They're no longer just, you know, um, uh. Superhero films, like they actually have yeah. their own genre. It's like Marvel movies, and there's, I think how many movies in the canon now? It's like I, 30, I think somebody or more. put it together. There's actually over a hundred hours of content in the Marvel universe. Yeah, and they're adding more. Like they're the biggest selling films, and they pretty much, I mean, Hollywood depends on these films doing well. They really do. Um, you don't get a lot of, you know, these individual uh, non-franchise films like hundred million plus dollar films anymore most of that money from the studios like the studio probably budgets about a billion dollars a year uh for for films or something like that and most of it like one superhero movie takes like 250 million dollars but you know what's really funny is that most of that money doesn't even get made back in the north american market yeah that's right it actually gets made back in the asian market well interestingly the only place where they actually make money is in the uh from the North American market is generally going to be with superhero films. Whereas like for example if you have like these non-franchise related films, 
pretty much the only director, not even Steven Spielberg, Steven freaking Spielberg can't even get those numbers anymore. So they have to like the only director that I know of that I'm at least I can think of at the top of my head that has that kind of power is Christopher Nolan. He's like the only guy that can make a non-franchise related film and have it and spend like a hundred plus million dollars on the budget and actually get a pretty good turnout domestically. Everybody else um, has to depend on like some big name like Spider-Man or Thor or Captain America or something like that. I'm very curious about Avatar 2 because it was yeah. like that movie rocked the world and then James Cameron's like, I'm going to make another one. And then yeah, he's yeah. taken like 10 years plus. Well, the they were saying that James Cameron is the two is the two highest grossing films of all time. So therefore he should have the two is highest failing <laughs> films of all time. <laughs> the, the Apparently, I think he's making Avatar 2 and 3. He filmed them at the same time. Right. So, and I think the budget was like, between the two of the films, it's probably like somewhere upwards of $600 million. They, they spent a fortune making these films. It's so funny to think there's just such a large film canology of both Star Wars and Marvel films now. Both things that actually succeed very well on the global market because lots of bright colors, lots yeah. of things that are flashy. You don't have to worry too much. That's not to say that the movies don't have like any kind of intellectual basis because right, right. there is like the inspiration is always yeah. there. Um, even Thor Ragnarok, if we come back to that for a moment, that story of Hulk being exiled onto another planet, that's mm -hmm. originally a Hulk story. Right. 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 Um, it was kind of, there is a disconnect between obviously the body of comics and the body of the cinematic universe, yeah. but they do kind of find some similarities here and there, and they take inspiration from one another, mm -hmm. that's for sure. Um, but yeah, Thor Ragnarok, I thought it was very entertaining, very well put together. Mm -hmm. It did feel like it was a lot better assembled than this film. Yeah. Well, like, generally speaking, Marvel movies will rarely get more than like a 7 out of 10 for me, generally mm -hmm. speaking, just because they're not doing anything particularly like groundbreaking. It's... um. A lot of the jokes you can kind of see, you know, they're fairly predictable. The VFX, uh, generally speaking, is not mind-blowing. It's, it's not horrible, but it, it kind of gets the job done. And, you know, I mean, obviously it's good, but it's like when you consider the budget that goes into some of these films, um, I feel like the VFX is not, like, you, you can tell. It's very obvious that it's, that it's like 90% VFX. Like, there's probably like thousands and thousands of VFX shots throughout the entire film. Um, and it's just, it's, inter it's entertaining, right? Like I, when, when, if I go into a Marvel movie thinking that this is going to change my world or something, I'm probably going to be disappointed. But if I'm just going for a good time, which is, I feel like how most people are w approaching these films. I just want to see some bright colors. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm not like, I'm not kind of coming from the comic book person end where like these characters are very dear to me. I'm very attached to the characters because right. I've read all the comics. And that's not me. I'm not mm -hmm. approaching these films. Like it's literally just, it's a good time, you know, have a beer enjoy a, a flick with your friends and then you kind of and you literally forget about the film in like five ten minutes it's like it's not even <laughs> that's not to say again yeah. there is an underlying intellectual basis these people do things deliberately mm -hmm. it's not like they're just you know spanking off into the yeah. film right it's done you know even in this there are themes behind it yeah and i think it's kind of interesting to just see how they fit into the zeitgeist of yeah. things um, so Thor Love and Thunder, to kind of give a bit of an outline of it, it centers around one of these villains named Golb, who is essentially like this, at least as characterized in the film, and portrayed by Christian Bale, who does a brilliant job. He was my favorite thing about the film. Yeah. 100%. The story of Golb, he 
is a devout follower who is then scorned by the god he follows and then merges with this sword uh the necro sword i believe it's called yeah, again like i never came across in the comics but it empowers him to then go on this almost like frederick nietzsche inspired journey to go and kill gods yeah yeah yeah. Which I thought was really interesting, yeah, in some way, yeah. because then his ultimate enemy is this guy who's not really good at being a god, yeah, Thor, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was actually I, uh, I, I, I didn't even watch. I think, I think maybe I saw the trailer once many months ago. So I, I basically came into this film like completely, uh, yeah, with nothing in my head. Like I don't even know. Like you told me, you're like, yeah, because. We were we were planning to watch Glass Onions. Yes, which turned out to not be out yet. Exactly. So we stay thought it was tuned out. for our review of Glass Onions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we were gonna watch Glass Onions. I was really stoked for that, but then it turns out it was not. It wasn't out yet. So we ended up we're like looking for something else, and then the new the Thor film was just finished its theatrical release more or less, and now it's streaming. So we're like, okay, let's watch that. And I again, I knew nothing going in, and so I was surprised, pleasantly surprised that at the beginning of the film, it's quite dark, right? It's it's pretty intense. It's like you have this character who is like in this desert, his, you know, his, his daughter dies, he buries his daughter and he's like this devout, you know, I guess some type of religion that where he, uh, he believes in this God and uh, he believes in, and uh, if you, if you're faithful that you'll, you'll merit eternal life. And then he enters, he hears these whispers and he's eventually led to this kind of garden thing. And he meets the God and the God's a total jock complete chad doesn't give a crap about him and actually tries. Oh, what? There's no eternal life for you, man. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, and then, yeah, that, that sword, I guess, chooses him. It's kind of like, uh, what do you call it? What's that? Um, At least the way it's explained, it's the necro sword. It is passed down from the beginning of time yeah, from like one Excalibur hateful pair of hands like to another. And yeah. it has the power to kill gods, yeah. which is like, it's funny to just call it a necro sword, which necro kind of well, relating like, to. You see in the film, the way, like the powers that he has, he like summons the dead. It's like shadows. Yeah. Mostly. The shadow realm. Yeah. So that's like, that would be, well, it's like the Sheol in the, in the old Testament. The Jews believed in Sheol, which was kind of like the shadow realm. And so he would summon the these these. I would actually say I was creatures. making this connection earlier. Those creatures, they're dark. They come out of shadows. They yeah. kind of symbolize a nihilism. They're very reminiscent of a Lovecraftian monster called Nyarlathotep, uh, otherwise known as like the Black Pharaoh, who would appear characterized as the crawling chaos in that sense. So it's that we're watching nihilism, mm-hmm. the death of the gods, the death of meaning battle you know the inspiration of love in some sense meaning right right throughout the film and it's almost like yeah right because we have thor who's trying to realize what being a god is all about what embodying meaning is and then kind of coming back to this idea of love yeah as being that meaning and then versus the nihilism that goal has embodied yeah that's that's uh um kind of more profound themes for a marvel movie but uh I mean, hey, I'm like actually, to, to be honest, though, Marvel movies do act; they do have uh, profound themes in them. It's just some, and that's actually part of the reason why I became less interested. So, like, you have that opening scene where we get introduced to that kind of that force of nihilism, right, with that character, and he kind of gets cursed, quote unquote, after uh, with that with that sword, which gives him the power, but it also gives him that curse where it's that nihilism um, or that that darkness, and he he's like basically seeking revenge now against the gods because. He feels betrayed, and then you cut to Thor, and you kind of see it's and, it, and like uh, I was saying, I was telling you while I was watching the film, Taika Waititi kind of reminds me of Sam Raimi, <laughs> the way he's able to jump from tones, his tonal shifts are really jarring, but he somehow finds a way to make it work. I don't think he's as good, 
I'll just straight up tell you, I don't think he's nearly as good as Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi, I think, is probably arguably one of the greatest directors when it comes to tonal shifts. Like, he can go from a very sad scene to the next scene. He's playing raindrops keep falling on my head. And you have Peter Parker in slow motion walking down the street looking like a complete geek. Like, that... Those Spider-Man movies are fantastic. They're fantastic. And it's amazing to me that those got done in the era yeah. before we knew things like the Avengers. Yeah. Those were like the original attempt at establishing a Marvel universe was that Spider-Man trilogy with Peter McGuire with like uh sorry, what's his face? McGuire. Toby McGuire. <laughs> Peter McGuire. Oh Peter my McGuire. gosh. Uh, yeah, no, but he was he is so well done. And then we saw that trilogy happen and it was like a huge blockbuster, and then we didn't hear anything until we started seeing things like Captain America and right. Iron Man yeah. and that attempt yeah. at establishing the new marvel universe yeah um but the only other thing i tend to think of sam raimi about is evil dead which i love those movies yeah they're yeah. goofy horror exactly and again like sam raimi he's so good at like that slapstick kind of uh, uh style and i love his his ability again to just shift between tones and, and again just somehow he finds a way to make it works is i think unparalleled and taika waititi is pretty good i'll give him credit he is pretty good but like a lot of the comedy for me actually didn't really work. It was a bit too predictable and kind of like I, I was more interested in, in like what you're talking about, which yeah. is kind of those deeper themes, which we I think we got a lot more of towards the end of the film. And then I was like, oh, this movie's really coming around. It's like all yeah. coming together. And there's always this yeah. thing I think about Taika Waititi movies, especially whenever he puts himself into the movie, which is almost always there's always this like. I've got this funny accent, so whatever I say is kind of a punchline every time. Sound you like know, my coworkers. We're gonna go get mural in there, and then we're gonna be a space Viking, and we're gonna get to everything. We I can't really do it right. I sound kind of yeah, South sound, African. That's, but, that's pretty good. That's yeah, pretty but, good. But yeah, though, I, I, it, his accent is kind of a punchline, which is why right. that character Korg was such a huge hit in yeah. Ragnarok, and he yeah. comes kind of comes back around here. But um, yeah, no. I like it's it's hit or miss yeah. this comedy because yeah. I enjoy it when it's not completely overloaded mm -hmm. and it felt a little bit over the top here mm -hmm. like things were almost too goofy to care mm -hmm. in some sense I, I don't know well, like it, it's strange because like you have that the opening of the film like we were talking about is is good like we, you get introduced to the villain and I think the villain was the best thing about the film because it oh, did yeah. provide like a more serious intense but also like a cool uh tone to to the film that I wasn't expecting. And then you get to Thor and it's kind of like this coming of age film where he's trying to find himself. And for a solid, like almost an hour, it's just kind of a lot of gags. There's some, a little bit of drama kind of here and there, but it's just kind of gag after gag. And even when they're going through their sort of hero journeys. Jodie Foster, yeah. Jane Fonda. Yeah. Were, were you like, were you like, for me, the comedy fell flat for the most part and the action actually fell flat. I wasn't really engaged with the action scenes, to be honest. The action scenes just... I've seen so many Marvel action scenes and it's kind of boring. Just, it's more of the same. It's all the same. You have that slow motion shot between the two sides kind of coming in the middle to like, you know, two swords meeting. It's just, it's, it was very repetitive you know and I just feel like I've seen it so many times. It really it didn't funny work for me. is that I think back to like, what is the best action films we've seen in a long time? And it's John Wick. John yeah. Wick changed the game for action because yeah. he brought the scale back yeah. down again. And that style of action, that kind of like tactical wrestling, shooting, all that stuff, it's been copied in so many films now. Yeah. From Mission Impossible to Atomic Blonde to like everything. Everybody loves that kind of tactical style of action because it's brought it back down to like the human substance of like kung fu, yeah. gun fu kind of 
Yeah. It, it, it's it's action, but it's also not over the top explosions yeah. and fire. And it was magic. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like I, the thing with John Wick and why those action scenes. Well, the, the director, like they literally made John Wick, like the character kind of came after. It was more so a director just wanting to make a good action film because there weren't very many. There was like, a love like, letter to real action. Well, basically, he's like it was kind of like um I forgot the director's name. Uh, cinema, <laughs> cinema fans, forgive me. Um, he directed Mad Max. George Miller was it? No, was it George Miller? George, something like that. I don't I, think it was George Miller. George, George Miller did Mad Max, but did he no, no, do no, no, John? That, Wick? No, no, no. He didn't do John Wick. He didn't do John. I'm just giving a comparison where basically I think it was George Miller. He basically when he made Mad Max three or no Mad Max Fury Road. It was basically like, this is how you actually make a proper action film. It was kind of like taking all the modern filmmakers to school. That's, how, that's what that film felt like for me. John Wick was something similar, where you had this, uh, this fan um, of action films, and he wasn't basically satisfied with what was coming out. And so he kind of uh, made a film where there wasn't actually a ton of character depth. There's more now. Sorry, but- John Wick is directed by Chad Stahelski and David Leitch. Yeah, so both of those guys are just they're they're action nerds. Like they actually yes. they they wanted to make a proper action film, and that's really all. Like John Wick is a proper genre film. It's like you're not paying to see like really deep, profound character development. It's predominantly just cool action. That's In what, the words that's what you're... of John Wick himself, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And they do a damn good job of it. Well, one of the key things about I think why their action works well is that they actually allow you to see it and they don't put it like a ton of music to overlay the sounds. Like actually in a lot of their action scenes, like that knife throwing scene you see in John Wick three. Oh my God. There's, that was no, incredible. there's no music. There's zero music. You just hear like the satisfying sounds of like bones breaking knife stabbing. Dude. Like, remember when we went to the theaters to see that yeah. and we were just sitting, I was sitting in my seat, like completely yeah. stunned by that was, knife fight. Yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. And the whole film, like when their action hits, they're not just putting like really loud, obnoxious music that honestly doesn't add anything. I don't know. The it dubstep takes away. The dubstep's kind of okay, cool. It, it depends on the scene, but like for example, when there is music, it's music that's actually like the, the characters can hear, right? Yes. So for, like, they're in a club, and then you hear the music because that's what the characters are listening to, and it kind of uh, it it works better. Whereas in a lot of these Marvel films, they have like this background kind of cool electric guitar music, like ACDC or something like that, or Aerosmith. There's a and, lot of classic rock, especially around the Guardians of the Galaxy and Thor yeah, films now. Yeah. Well, the, the Guardians of the Galaxy is different because, again, it, the, like um, uh, Quinn, he actually is listening to that music. Like he'll yeah. put on his headphones. Peter Quill. Quill. Quill, Quill yeah. sorry. He'll like put on his headphones and then he'll play, play the music. Yes. As he, and it, it works better because now he's fighting in tune with the music. Whereas like in, the, in this Thor movie, which is most of Marvel's movies. Ah, yeah. Hooked on a feeling, but. <laughs> I love that song. Uh, they're just fighting and they have like this electric guitar music and it's just, it's not that it's horrible. It just, it doesn't, at least for me, it's, it kind of takes away from the excitement of an actual intense mm-hmm. action scene where you don't know what's going to happen. Anything goes. And I feel like if you just kill the music, allow like the sounds of like, you know, the swords hitting and the, and then the, you know, punching and actually, and not maybe like too much slow-mo, way too much slow-mo. They just abuse it. Let the intensity of the moment speak for exactly. itself. Exactly. Actually, uh, another good action scene was um in Dark Knight Rises when Batman has like, uh, what's his name? He wears the mask. Um, Bane? Bane. When Bane breaks his back, that entire sequence, there's zero music. None. 
no music. Yeah. All you hear is like the intensity of the atmosphere and and them talking and uh, it was, was well born done. Like, darkness. I really think that music needs like that's just one, and there's probably other things they mm-hmm. could do as well. But all the action scenes in this film, at least for my money, didn't they weren't terrible, but they didn't really hit because they wouldn't actually allow the action to settle. They would constantly be playing music, and there's too many things going on as well. Tons of VFX, you know, jumping and then slow mo. Like they're o- they always had to have. Uh, some type of special uh, effect. Listen, whether if we don't have flashing effect. lights and colors, yeah. we're not going to get the Asia market. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's a quota. I, I feel like there's probably a quota at this point. Um, but it would just be nice if you actually, if you, you know, let's just have two guys fight. Um, you know, and just stick with the basics. I think the basics oftentimes go further than all the all this all this flashy um, effects that they do. Yeah. Uh, what did you think about so? When I'm thinking about the actors, Christian Bale anchored the whole film. Yeah. His serious portrayal of a serious character with serious meaning. Mm -hmm. And then like every moment that he was on screen, it was like there was so much gravity to him. Right. in just like the tiny facial expressions, the the creaks of his voice, like he really nailed it. He's a world class actor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, He was the best actor that they had in that. And and they had a lot of cameos. Like Matt Damon was there. Russell Crowe was there. Melissa McCarthy was there. (laughs) Melissa McCarthy was there um, briefly, but they were all there. And uh, yeah, Christian Bale was by far the best actor uh, in the film. And and also he was my favorite part of the film as well. But uh, Natalie Portman, she's... Not Lay a, you down quite a bit. She's, she's not a great she? actress. Like she had one, at least that I know of. I haven't seen all of her films, but one really good performance, which was in Black Swan, and I think that actually that's the type of performance where, um, I guess maybe her disposition lends very well towards because in every other film that I've seen her in, she just comes across as very awkward, and kind of struggling to be natural in front I of the camera. I liked her in Star Wars. I thought she was a pretty good Padme. I don't know, man. She just. In this film, there's a lot of scenes where I'm just like, she just looks really uncomfortable right now. And just, I don't know. I almost feel weird because I, I feel think, like she's a little out of place in a Marvel I, I, movie. Well, it's not even just that. I just feel like now, I mean, she was in Star Wars, but <laughs> um, I, I just feel like she's one of those actors in Hollywood, actresses in Hollywood uh, that are incredibly overrated. Um, again, I've only seen one performance from her where I thought it was actually good, which was Black Swan. And then in every other film, I find her to be just very awkward. And she kind of has like that cringe smile that she does. Uh, and that's what you pretty much get out of her the entire film. You know, what? actually, a character I, I like quite a bit is uh, Valkyrie. Not sure what the actress's name is. Yeah, she's a yeah, better actress. I actually quite like the character. I like she's the actress. She's far more natural she on screen. A, and... I will have to give it to them. There's one scene where it's like, it's Valkyrie and Jane talking in a hallway. And they're like, I, I just love the joke where she's just like, I, you know, I love being king. I love these people, but it's all meetings and Raven mail and meetings that could have been Raven mail. And I just like, I love that joke so much because it's like you know, Zoom meetings and emails and Zoom yeah, yeah. meetings that could have been emails <laughs> in some sense. Yeah, yeah. In terms of that development of that tension, they do an excellent job of it because the other side to it is this idea that. And this isn't really a spoiler because it happens in the beginning. Jane has cancer, stage four cancer. Sorry, spoiler alert. Oh, but no. well, it's that's the other side of it, right? Is the, the idea that like she's dying? That's like right. kind of our our test. Yeah, the movie a little bit. 
and the fact that they can kind of bring life to the character in that one yeah. scene that made it for me. Yeah. Well, this is kind of a, a little bit of a tangent what you're talking about, but like in regards to like Marvel characters dying, nobody freaking dies in these movies. That's one of my problems. With, like they kept Korg alive. Um, they 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 refuse. Like even if a character dies, the next film they're like brought back to life. Did you see the Last Jedi? Uh, yes, I think it I was the, technically the ninth episode of Star Wars. It was god awful for that exact reason. Yeah, I'm just where every time somebody died, they would almost immediately be brought back to life. Every single time, and it took all of the tension out of the entire movie, and it just absolutely sucked. Right. It was awful because of that. Like, here's the thing. With that kind of budget, with these kind of set pieces, with this idea, you could have gone a lot of places. But that movie sucked because every time they thought they killed a character, yeah. they immediately brought them back to life. Yeah. And I don't, like, they, it's not even like they did it once. It's, they did it, like, yeah, they do it four times with, in like, a row. multiple characters. Yeah. It's really obnoxious. Very awful. And So, so when they do it again yeah. with, like, Korg in this movie, and I hated it. Yeah. Just let him die. <laughs> and then he's not like like even after he, they kept him up but he's really a narration device in this film yeah he's like the funny narration device that they use throughout the film and i yeah he's literally narrating the entire movie and so they guess they kept him alive for that reason but like he doesn't actually do anything in terms of like i've been thinking a lot about this moving the story like, what do you feel about narration in films uh well it depends how you use it um i i, I don't have a problem with it at all i think there's some Films that do an incredibly good job of it. Because it's almost a complete breach of that show-don't-tell idea. Uh, well, I think it helps you get into the character's head. Um, and I think it can also... Sometimes it's, it's even just nice to sort of listen to... Because it's the character... Yeah, it helps you get into the character's head. It's just them describing the experience. Or sometimes they're like writing a letter. Or like writing a journal or something like that. It's funny, like... It, 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 like, for example, Martin Scorsese, mm-hmm. he's one of the kings of narration. I think he does a very, very good as job. As long as I can remember, I've always wanted to be a gangster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you have all these iconic lines, and so he's been working with narration for a long time. There's also narration in in silence, uh, and he does it w- well there, but a lot of his films, he uses it. And it's it's interesting, because he'll do it with multiple characters. So it's not like the whole movie's told from, like, narrated by a single person. It'll be like, he'll just sw- uh, switch it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I'm trying to bring a hold of narration on a pedestal. My three biggest movie, three movies that I would compare in this instance, 300 does narration beautifully. They have like that one character with the incredible voice who does it. I forget the name of the actor, but he's also in Lord of the Rings, which is the other film series that does narration beautifully. No, 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 it's not Gerard Butler. Cause that, that he plays Leonidas. I'm talking about the guy who plays like Leonidas adjacent character who does like, uh, don't know. Yeah. <laughs> You'd, you'd know him if you heard his voice. Yeah. But he's also in Lord of the Rings, and Lord of the Rings is another place where almost you need narration because of how complex the story is. Um, but then you come into this area where Taika Waititi's goofy Korg character is right. doing the narration. Did you like that or not? Again, it was kind of like, take it or leave it. It didn't really do... It didn't take away from me. Uh, there were some parts that were kind of funny, but it didn't really... Um, add a whole ton either it was just kind of there so i'm kind of indifferent towards it to be honest um didn't hate it didn't love it what i have neutral was surprised about yeah. is that when i watched that scene where korg is narrating the love affair between jane and thor mm-hmm. that is when 
the acting between both Chris Hemsworth and Natalie Portman, I felt like, was actually quite on point. Well, they're basically just pretending to be a couple in a lot of insert shots. Yeah, but like like you could tell the emotion of the scene just based off their faces. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Although I think any competent actor should be able to do that. That's true. Um, I I feel like I know actors that would be able to pull that off. Like it's not, yeah, they're just showing it's like, you know, she looks like sad here because Sora's not on her bed, and then I think one you, know, you can see like the physical distance separate. It wasn't like anything new. I think one thing that did stand out to me language. during that sequence though was that like those these people had a lot of fun making this movie. And so Probably. I could see them; they had Although fun on there's set. A, there's kind of a saying in the film industry, which is that the more fun you have making the film, the worse the film is probably going to be. Really? <laughs> yeah. I almost hear it the other way around sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it depends. Like. Um, maybe that's a rule more for comedy than it is for, um, than it is for, uh, action films. I don't know, mm-hmm. but I, I've heard that before. Um, I don't know. Again, I don't know how true it is, but if a bunch of actors are just having the time of their lives, you know, that's great. But at the same time, when I think of my favorite directors, most of them are pretty gruesome to work with. <laughs> so like, for example, some of my favorite directors of all time would be like David Fincher, uh, Stanley Kubrick. Um, uh, Richard Linklater, he's pretty good too, although he's a little bit different the way he makes films. I like the Coen brothers as well. But, like, for example, David Fincher, he'll do, like, 90 takes. So if you're doing 90 to 100 takes of just you sitting on a chair, you're not exactly having the time of your life. Sounds like when I wonder, it's you like, what, what is it like watching Jackie Chan trying to flip this chair around for the 80th <laughs> time in a row? Stanley Kubrick, very similar. He would do a lot of takes, but he'd also kind of play mind games with the actors to get the type, the, to get the performance that he actually needed. And just very particular, very kind of um, very enigmatic figure on set and off set. You kind of like that too, you know? You try to stress me out just so I look a little bit meaner or something on set. I don't think it's enigmatic with me though. Because <laughs> I know what you're doing. <laughs> and it's pissing me off more. Um, here's a bit of a pivot. Theology in the Marvel Universe is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, in terms of their divine structure in a way, because they have gods from mythologies like Thor, and right. then they have gods from mythologies like Zeus, yeah. which we saw in this movie. Right. There's also um, Dionistic characters, almost like, or sorry, deistic characters, kind of like Galactus, who I mentioned, who kind of makes like a brief appearance. Um, but there's, what's interesting is that, in, at least in pre-incursion, they used to have this, they actually had a version of God, God, like Christian, all knowing, all omnipotent, one God. They had, they actually did a little comic series where Peter Parker's like having a terrible day and then he actually has a chat with God. It's funny. Um, and then they actually do at one point touch on this idea of the one above all, the mm-hmm. God of their universe, who is basically Jack Kirby, um, the guy who wrote the Marvel comics next to Stan Lee in that way. But then they kind of, reintroduce the idea that these pantheons exist and it becomes kind of it's a model for this film to play across to have these theologies these gods just like walking around like regular people and they come down it's we almost see it in an after credits scene where zeus is like they look up into the sky now and they think they're going to see a superhero yeah they don't look for lightning and rain anymore yeah well uh i don't know is that a spoiler? I have no idea. Well, not really. I mean, we've kind yeah. of gone past that point already. Yeah, I guess that's fair. But like the gods and these, like, yeah, it's it's sort of polytheistic. But that that's the thing. It's like they're not really gods in the sense that if you define God as like the uncreated creator, then they're not gods. 
mm-hmm. most of these people like they have a be- most of these characters seem to have a beginning and they 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 can die um they're hard to kill very difficult to kill but they can't die and so if we define god as the uncreated creator um and kind of all powerful like any like basically the one thing god can't do is die or you know something like that like a synod- synonym like, of objective god truth. is being itself everything receives being from god himself if that's how if that's the 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 working understanding of god then most most of these characters in these marvel films don't really qualify as god they kind of qualify as very powerful being that's kind mm-hmm. of closer to what they well they almost are. consistently make a joke of these beings right yeah. in some sense right like even there's a whole series making loki out to be a complete fool in a lot of these right, senses yeah. right and that's almost the crux of thor as a character he's made even more silly than usual yeah um in the comics thor is actually quite serious yeah. it's quite brooding right because he's almost kind of aware of the fact that he's kind of a joke in this world in the sense that he used to be the mighty Norse Viking Thor, and then suddenly he's in this world where a million other people are running around with superpowers that yeah. kind of parallel him and humbled he's a little bit, yeah. a little bit humbled, but also like I used to be on top mm-hmm. in that sense, and even more so now, in the sense that Thor is no longer the one carrying the hammer; he's not even worthy anymore. Mm-hmm. So he's on this like journey to like try to figure himself out and self actualize yeah. and try to get. What the heck am I? Which is one of the things that made Ragnarok so powerful as a film is that idea that like you're not Thor, god of hammers, <laughs> in that sense. Right, right, right. That was actually a, a really cool theme for the film. This Love and Thunder, I feel like had a cool theme, but they were almost too goofy. Well, like that's the thing. It's like um, the beginning started out well, and then you kind of cut to a lot of the gags, and maybe you kind of do an hour of. At least for me, it was like, okay, let's move this along. Like, actually, I thought the film was too long. I thought the film was way too long. A touch. Thought, yeah, it was, it was a bit too long. Not like, maybe not way too long, but I think they could have cut 10, 10 to 20 minutes. They could have shaved off of that film. Um, and then it kind of picks up more towards the end where things start to converge a bit more. And I think the, it, it's a bit more impactful, but just a lot of um, gags, at least for me, that didn't really hit. And then, you know, kind of the typical marvel comedy um that i guess if people enjoy it then they, they're not going to complain but if, if if i don't really feel like it's moving the story yeah. or if i don't really feel like i'm getting any closer to like there wasn't much of a reason to leave cool it, life was the yeah well like you didn't I, really see of a purpose <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, okay so I, we both agree that our favorite character was the villain but yeah we actually didn't see that much of him not enough. No. And when we did see, it's like, if you take away the action scenes, which don't really tell us a ton about his character, it's just like, you know, it's just an action. Um, there's not a lot. Like, maybe less than 10 minutes. Because um, there's not a lot of actually time for, for Christian Bale. Lends substance to the film yeah. at all. Because yeah. his character, whenever he's on screen, is lending substance to the film. Well, like, in those action scenes, they could have just had a stunt double. You know what I mean? So it's like, how much of Christian Bale are they? Did they actually get in this film? And I feel like if you got Christian Bale, you have this top actor, and you actually gave him a pretty good character, and he's killing it. Give him more screen time. That was kind of that was one of my my. I, Let I think him I missed talk more. Let him elaborate on yeah. what the heck he's doing yeah. a little bit, right? Because yeah. we're left. I'm sitting back here and I'm going, oh yeah, I understand the whole idea yeah. of killing God and philosophy yeah. and nihilism, and it's helping me flesh out this. Yeah 
idea a little bit more, but like your average viewer doesn't really know that. Or again, like where I felt the film was like, okay, this is good. This is working for me is when it's actually getting a little bit deeper. You know, they're Mm -hmm. kind of trying to have these deeper conversations, these, these, uh, uh, more confrontational. And that's where like the real conflict is not just like, Oh, he's a bad guy. I'm going to attack him. And they kind of have that at the beginning of the film. Like literally it's like, Oh, bad guys, I'm Thor. And they kind of have like this funny sort of action, action scene, which we've seen a million times before with these Marvel films. Um, and just again, incredibly goofy. Like when he's doing the splits to stop those two, like <laughs> so stupid, <laughs> those two spaceships from like, it's like a commercial or something. Wasn't there a commercial yeah, that I did that? Know. I don't just, know. You know, um, I guess just goofy, really, really goofy. Very much. And, uh, it's that stuff that, you know, I, I understand why it's there. I don't mind having some of it, but like, I felt like that middle part of the film was just a lot of it. I'm just like, okay, can we move on? Can we actually, and like, I was hoping they were going to cut back to the villain a little bit sooner. Yes. And we would get a bit more backstory, you know, maybe see more development there, um, or more even conversation between mm-hmm. him and, and somebody else. But no, not really. It's like, okay, he's cursed. He's like on this mission for revenge. He, he wants retribution and all that. And it's like, okay. You know what I was it. trying to do for the movie? I was trying to think about like, where's the part where he actually told us what his name is? Because the first time we hear his name is when Zeus says it. How does Zeus know his name? I What's wasn't going on? Close enough, so right? I, I didn't. Uh, he never didn't actually tells but... us himself what his name is and what his purpose is, why he's right. trying to kill yeah. gods. Right? We just well, imply it. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Like, which is can... fine, but like, wouldn't I think it's it be pretty clear though? Uh... Give it to him in a monologue, <laughs> like Christian Bale do it. Yeah, exactly. I actually even like a, a good monologue. Like that's 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 proper the theater. American Psycho man. Yeah, exactly. If I if you know, I don't know. I don't know what limitations Taika Waititi is working with. So you know, these are big production you films see, man, with like we only have one hundred million dollars. Well, no, it's not <laughs> that type of no. That that's actually the, the those. It, it's I- ironic. Because the more money the studio gives you, the more limitations you're going to have. They're not going to let you go willy-nilly and make whatever you want. Unless you're like Christopher Nolan or some shit. Like, if you're Christopher Nolan, you have Here, like go this make special tenet. place in Hollywood where you've made these films which are hard to understand, but somehow they make money. Because at the end of the day, that's all they really care about. It's just, we need to make sure we get our money back and then make profit. And so these Marvel films are like, we figured out a formula. This works. You need to have this many action scenes, these comedy bits make it family friendly, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so I'm sure Taika Waititi wasn't able to, at least I feel like uh, he probably wasn't able to do a hunt. Like he didn't have a hundred percent creative liberty. I think Marvel did work with him um, and give him some, but like if, if he had more, maybe he would have done that. Maybe he would have given Christian Bale a bit more uh, kind of room to, to, to sort of rant or, or something like that. But that's proper theater to have like the villain go on a monologue like give him that space to really speak his mind and 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 have this this his moment well it's like all great theatrical villains have that yeah and he didn't really get much of it no and i feel like he would have killed it too oh my god and that's where you can actually use vfx to sort of you know give him a spotlight um to to like you hardly need it honestly like i've seen i've gone and seen shakespearean plays and watch a character do a monologue on an empty stage a good actor Mm. can hold a scene you don't need that much flash it's so true it's so true and that's the thing like a lot of times a low budget film with only like three million dollars not you know not 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 a lot of flash will be more impactful more memorable 
than a hundred plus million dollar film with all the action, all the effects that you could possibly imagine. But if the story or the acting just, or the, you know, the, the experience isn't there where it engages you, then yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna kind of forget about it probably in a, like maybe 10 minutes. I'm trying to remember Thor Rag, uh, not Thor Ragnarok, <laughs> Love and Thunder. There were some scenes though, which I think I'll remember. You know what I think? Amount of time. Again, I was closer towards Could have fixed the movie is a little less Korg. A little less of Taika Waititi's Korg, and a little more Star Lord. I quite like Chris Pratt's portrayal of him, and having like that latter stage Star Lord who's lost Gamora, and now he's like he's giving Thor advice. Like having that hand on the shoulder, good advice, kind of grown up kind of character. Yeah, yeah. Could have lent the movie a lot more substance. I think. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah. I mean, just an idea. I don't feel very passionately be about Marvel. I'll be if it if it hasn't yeah. been, you know, obvious already. I'm not super passionate about most of these Marvel films. There's really one character that I'm very passionate about and I love dearly, which was Spider Man, and they completely butchered him in a in the. Well, you don't but, like Tom Holland, no, Spider Man, no. and it's all that. And nothing with Tom Holland specifically. It's it's more with the writers. It's more with what they did to Spider Man. I can't stand it. Can't stand. Mm. Maybe that's a for another podcast. But. I actually watched Uncharted recently. I feel like Tom Holland was the worst part of it. He's kind of a he's kind of a dick. I don't. I I didn't like his Nathan Drake yeah. for that reason. Yeah. I don't know about like. I'm not mad at his Peter Parker. I just don't find it to be as potent as even Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker was. Yeah. Right. At least like. Nothing really hits us as hard anymore as Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker, yeah. when we still had feelings. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the thing about uh, the Sam Raimi films, and I understand everyone brings up Spider-Man 3, oh, Spider-Man 3. Listen, I'd take Spider-Man 3 over any of the Spider-Mans that were made after. Bro, I used to get, I had Spider-Man 3 on DVD. When people came over, we would just fast forward it's to all of the action scenes. It's not that bad. It's not it's that not bad. not that bad. It's a great movie. I had a great time watching that. <laughs> I love James Frank James Franco's Green Goblin when he came back on a freaking snowboard that yeah. flies. That was cool. Yeah. No, but like, like straight up, Mar- uh, Spider-Man 3 is still, even though it's the worst of the three, clearly, it is still way better than The Amazing Spider-Man 1, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and all of these homecoming whatever... Hang on, uh, hang on. Have you seen No Way Home? No Way Home, no. I, I literally... I'm that's you, that, that's your after homework. After Homecoming, I refuse you, 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 to watch anything. Just more. watch No Way Home. Just, okay. Forget about the other ones. Just watch No Way Home. That's the, the only with important. All the cameos. Yes, oh, but gosh. they do a good job. It's actually good. It's <sighs> a pretty. It's the best of the three. Like, it's a pretty good movie. Just, just it's your homework. Watch No Way Home. How I'm curious feel, what you how, think. How do you feel about Homecoming? Like, what, what's okay? Not just Homecoming, but how do you feel about this new Spider-Man that they've. That they've pushed out there. I'm this not very modern, you know, Gen Z Spider-Man. Strategically, strategically thinking for the Marvel Universe, I think it's a good move. Am I hot about this particular portrayal of Spider-Man? Not really. But Why? our generation, our generation is Tobey Maguire. And nothing can top that. Well, listen, I actually, there are like the... um what was it called? The Spectacular Spider-Man, which was, uh, it was the animated series that ran for about two seasons. That is my favorite rendition of Spider-Man. Period. By far. 
Um, and I'm in good company in saying that. There's a lot of like devout Spider-Man fans that would agree that Spectacular Spider-Man was sensational. And it's a tragedy that it got canceled. And it wasn't even canceled because of like lack of views or something. It was canceled just due to rights. Because at that time, there was this... And you probably know like Sony and Marvel were kind of disputing over... Because Marvel wasn't doing very good at the time. Mm-hmm. And so Sony ended up buying the rights to Spider-Man. And that caused all this kind of chaos. And that's how we ended up getting the amazing Spider-Man. They made some badass video game. Right. And so Sony eventually, I think now Sony sold the rights back to Marvel. Because Marvel's doing well now because of all these superhero films. and so now, or, or I guess technically Disney. Because Disney owns Marvel. Yes. And that's how we got this Disney Spider-Man. Which is what he is. That's what the Tom Holland Spider-Man is. That's it's a, very true. It's a very yeah. Disney Spider-Man. And I can't stand it because Bro, he doesn't face any real watch No Way Home and see Willem Dafoe come back on the screen and it'll give you goosebumps. It's like that's probably the best parts of that movie is seeing the old Spider-Man stuff come back. Okay, but you see, you're, you're like, pro- like, I'm not. I'm not, proving not, your point. I, I know, no, like, you, I know. You, you, but that's why No here. Way Home is good. It's like No Way Home is good insofar as it's basically trying to be like the older Spider or like literally bringing back old Spider-Man well, actors and Actually, characters I would say what it does is it brings the, the film, best like, of both worlds because it brings that grandiose, you know, multi-layered plot that Marvel does now, and it matches it up with the charm of old Spider-Man. I, I, again, I'll, I'll give it a watch. Um, uh, but uh, it just I, I after Homecoming <laughs> and even seeing a little bit of uh, what was it called? Uh, away, Home Away, or some something like that. I, I do have to say that I actually think if Disney does one good thing with this Marvel universe, the casting is quite good. When, even when I look at, like, Chris Hemsworth playing Thor, it's really good. That dude's sauced, man. I've never seen him so Very big. probably. He's built like a tree. Like, I, like if, you've, if you've seen the, uh, the More Plates, More Dates uh, video where he basically does videos on, like, a lot of these celebrities or even athletes and kind of says, natty or not, are they, are they taking, you know, um, are they taking Supple- supplements supple- and steroids? Are they taking steroids or are they not? And, like, Chris Hemsworth was ve- is very clearly taking roids. Like, there's no way. I think he's, like, approaching 50 Just look now. at the veins on the arms, man. Well, not 50, but, like, he's actually a lot older than people think. And to, to put on... He probably put on maybe 5 to 10 pounds of muscle for this latest film at that age is really hard. So there's just no way... This dude was shredded. He's ridiculously huge in this film. Yeah. He's never been bigger. Yeah. This is, like, his peak physique. And uh, like his delts are ridiculous <laughs> in this film, and and uh, uh, he because he also sells like I think he sells he's like sponsored with supplements and he sells workouts and all this stuff. If you think that you're gonna do all these workouts and, mm-hmm. and look like that, you're wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. Like he's using, he's getting help. He's getting help from you know some pharmacists. Everything and, from the steroids probably down to getting his muscles airbrushed in post. It's not healthy, though. Um, Probably not. I mean, but granted, when you're paid $20, 30000000 million for a film, yeah, I mean, Worth you, gotta, it. you want to look the part because, yeah. you know, that, that, that kind of physique is, even, even if you're t- taking steroids, that kind of physique is a lot of work. But just in general, I mean, like, getting back to my point, Disney does a really good job casting. From Chris Evans as Captain America to Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. Like, these are really good casting choices. I'm not mad at Tom Holland playing Peter Parker. No, I, I've never had an issue Especially because he's, with, like, a younger yeah. Peter Parker. Yeah. Right? I don't have an, any issue with him. Again, it's like I said, it's, it's more the writing. 
and what they've yeah. done with the character. Like, oh my gosh, what they did with Aunt May. Um, his suit is basically an Iron Man suit, and just there's just so many things that completely kill what I what I loved about Peter Parker. Because like that's the thing. It's like it's not Spider Man doesn't make Peter Parker. Peter Parker makes Spider Man. Yeah, and the whole and this is what Stan like when Stan Lee he he touched on this and he knew he understood he Stanley understands why Spider Man was his most successful character. It's because he was the most relatable. It was, was just reading a guy. these comics. It was just teenagers. A it was dude like, who was balancing his life like everyone exactly. else. Exactly. Like the fact that, you know, he has to go save the world and he has to rush at home to deal with every like issues that we have. You know, he's gotta you know, take care of his aunt. He's gotta try and pay bills. And that's why Spider-Man 2 is probably the best Spider-Man film, is because the whole film is him just getting beat up by life. Not even just the villain. It's life. Yeah. It's just, I can't pay bills. I'm doing crappy in school. Damn. My relationships are going to trash. Um, the Spider-Man thing isn't even working. I'm literally losing my powers. I can't even shoot webs anymore. That's the Peter Parker. That's the Peter it, Parker that we all relate it to. It does carry a little bit into the third movie when he starts doing Venom like cocaine. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that same plot, but a little bit on steroids. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. Kind of, and that, that's, that's fairly close to the comics, right? Yeah. It's like, it kind of makes, it's like this, it's kind of, because Spider-Man was always a sort of alter ego for, for Peter Parker. But then when you add Venom to that, it brings it to this whole new level and it becomes sort of like edgy Spider-Man or something like that. But these new Spider-Man films, Peter Parker, like, oh my gosh, the amazing Spider-Man with that, that, we won't even talk about that. That was extraordinarily bad. So I'll give, Here's the thing. Yeah. Everything about that film was not good, except for Andrew Garfield. He did a really good job playing Peter Parker. He was jittery. The, my one problem with him is that he almost seemed like he was too witty and too popular to be Peter Parker. Well, I actually have to disagree a little bit there. Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker was... because and, and he, he brought up a good point. So this is not... like Andrew Garfield, I think he is a really good actor, but he has a... He, here's a challenge that a lot of... Um, uh, anybody who's gonna any actor that's eventually gonna try and pay, play Peter Parker in a modern age, you have to be a dork. Exactly, yeah. but like the thing is, those guys rule the world now. Yeah, so it's it's a different world. Like when Stan Lee created Spider Man, those guys were bullied. You know, the guy with yeah, know, tucked in his shirt, his Jewish kid getting beat up in an alleyway, probably right. In math, very yes. nerdy, very stupid. They were bullied by yes. the jocks and stuff. But now, ever since you know the internet, and now bullying is kind of more like cyber or whatever. It's not really that like I didn't see that in high school. I don't know if you did, but like it's a different it's a different time. And the so, nerds are in charge now. <laughs> they, they, they pretty much rule the world. Like, yeah. You're going to end up working for them. And so um, uh, Andrew Garfield literally pointed that out. He's like, you know, what is that nerdy outcast bullied guy in today's world? No, anymore? like here's it's, it's what a I different... want from the next Spider-Man. It's a kid on the brink of shooting his school. <laughs> you give him Spider-Man power. So he's he, like, he picks in. up a, a Jordan Peterson book <laughs> that he puts on the Spider-Man outfit. <laughs> and then you give him a Venom outfit. And oh, then, my oh my God. Gosh. Oh, jeez. That would be, that would be dark. Yeah. No. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, I think that that is a challenge for any actor, any writer kind of trying to make a Spider-Man for a modern age is, is what does that nerdy outcast kid look like in today's world as opposed to like the kind of the obvious one in in Stan Lee's age. Um, And so like the fair play, but Andrew Garfield's Mm -hmm. Spider-Man or Peter Parker, I should say, ended up being kind of like a douche, to be honest. He sort of like seemed like a douchebag, like the way he treated 
his aunt wasn't good. Whereas I think when I look at Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, he always seemed like from the beginning, like he had a sincere heart. Like he actually genuinely cared about his family and he tried, you know, to be good to his friends, but he just, you know, life would get in the way or he would get distracted and things like that. Whereas the Andrew Garfield's uh, characterization was just like, he just seemed so full of like, oh, she doesn't love me. Yeah, just very <laughs> emo, very focused in on himself uh, and just unnecessarily. Uh, I think he honestly um, redeems himself in No Way Home. Well, like this is Andrew Garfield's because yeah, that's oh, true. Oh no, hold on, No Way Home. All right, so yeah. When I, in I his like, he's, he makes a cameo. So it's it's not a cameo. Honestly, it's not. They're not cameos. They're real characters. So like, they're in the film for Dude, extended periods of time. Watch it. Okay. Um, I, like it's redeeming. It's quite redeeming. Um, opening, I'm cracking open a beer. Do it. Um, <laughs> that satisfying sound. We're, what are we drinking? Uh, same thing as last time. Hell is Lager. Hell is Lager. Let's come back to Thor for a minute here. Cinematography? Not really there. Wasn't special. No. Nothing special. Music choices, very typical. Yeah. Classic rock marvel. When I think about the story, like, thematically, there was a lot of substance there, but it doesn't come out in the writing. Yeah. A lot of Um, potential. Lots of potential. Yes. Good moments with a lot of potential, but... It's kind of lost in making things a little too goofy. Yeah. I think some of the things that... I don't know if it's like the movie's afraid to be too smart. Like it, it had potential to go places that it didn't. Right. I almost felt like if you just left Jane Foster out of the story and focused on Thor, you probably could have gotten a lot of mileage out of it. Well, I, I, I like I did like some of the scenes with her towards the end and she did ended up. I think she was. I don't want to say useful, but she was influential in in that theme of like love versus nihilism, and so she like I I, I guess I got that part, mm-hmm. but um I feel like they could have again. It's just I feel like that middle act, the first maybe ten to twenty minute. Well, the first really just the opening act is like when you get introduced to the villain. I'm like I'm like okay, sick. I'm in for this, and then it, like for a solid hour of the film, it's just too much. Too much goofiness and not enough of actually kind of coming back to that villain. The villain really doesn't come back until maybe you see him in the beginning. I don't think you really see him again until maybe like an hour later or yeah. something like that. It's just, and even when you do, it's it's very brief. So I think if they could have found a way to incorporate him more. I feel like a lot of better. this movie was just an excuse to do things that fans like to write in their fan art, which is like Thor is a dad. Now. Yeah, that's that fan art. That's coming. a fan art thing yeah. to do, and they brought it to life. Man, like I said, lots of potential in this so movie, but what, didn't end up going. Anywhere. I want to give it out of ten. First impression: five point five. No oh, shit. That's I'm worth. usually pretty generous. <laughs> I'm pretty generous with films like this, but like honestly, five point five. Yeah. Okay. Which is like that whole five point five I'm giving it is a lot of its good parts and its potential, but it just it let me down a yeah. little bit. Um, I had zero expectations going to the film, so I think I might actually give it a little higher than you. I think I'm no. going for six. Huh. Going for six. And I think a lot of that is because of my lower expectations for, like, I, I, yeah, it's just like, for what it is, I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. But. Good enough. Maybe that's not always a good thing. Listen, right? my faith 
in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the thing that's going to redeem Disney and, you know, bring us back to the cinematic heights that we truly deserve is She-Hulk. You just have to I'll put it all on She-Hulk, make another couple seasons of Megan Thee Stallion teaching her to twerk. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That happened in the show. That was like episode three. You've seen three episodes? I haven't. I've seen two episodes, and I was so blown away by how bad this show is. <laughs> Whole, like, And they're going about it like they're so proud of it. They're so proud of this show. They're just full steam ahead. They're like, everybody loves this, oh gosh. what we're doing. Here's the thing. She-Hulk in the comics, pretty good character. Pretty solid go at a character. Is like, so there's a this, real thing there. This is Disney? Yeah, let me give you the let me give you the yeah. basics, right? In the comics, in Marvel, there is a lawyer lady who gets herself the powers of Hulk and now has to contend with the idea of being a form of Hulk while trying to do her regular everyday job as a lawyer. And so naturally she becomes wrapped up in the job of superhero law. And it's kind of like an in and out character that we see in a lot of the comics. It's a pretty good character. Like she it's a very serious character but in the show they punch up the girl boss angle so hard they make her completely infallible and thereby completely unlikable by the way and it's not even like they picked again they do a good job of casting people who look the role but then their writing was horrendous mm -hmm. this was like disney back patting themselves for this so hard it is a terribly written show well i don't know like there is, is it doing well no <laughs> <laughs> nobody likes this show well, here's the here's the thing it's like disney um this is their new business model they don't make films that people want they make films that they think the people should want and when the people don't want them, they're going to market them in such a way, basically saying that you will like this or you should like this. Yes. And that's a lot of Disney's movies these days. It's not it's not like this is what the people wanted to see or this is it's just like, here's what you should want. If you don't this like this. It's because you're wrong. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And maybe there maybe there is a market for that She-Hulk, but I I based on what you're describing, I feel like the market for She-Hulk is brain dead. Brain dead people. Brain dead in the hospital. That should be the, the <laughs> that should be the the header for your article when you review it. Brain be it. dead. <laughs> <laughs> Brain dead. <laughs> not much of a not much of a She Hulk review. It's more of a Thor slash Spider Man slash Marvel in general. Where, where do you see Marvel going in like the next 20, 30 years? Like, I thought I really thought after the end of well, Endgame, mm -hmm. that this would kind of, Marvel would slowly start to sort of maybe like taper off. We can't do that. There's no, money. No, there's way too, I, I was such a stupid uh, uh, prediction. That was very like, there's no, There was no way that yeah. was going to happen. I was like, I was like, okay. And I, I really, really enjoyed Endgame. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It was just a nice close. I thought it just kind of nicely kind of brought everything together. And like, I grew up throughout high school watching these films. So I was like, wow, this is like 10 years of movies. And I remember watching the first Iron Man when I was young and loving it. And then, you know, growing up, and so it was an emotional experience. Mm -hmm. Endgame was very emotional. Oh yeah, for I think a lot of us because we grew up with these films. Like we were teenagers, and and the new movie came out. We'd go in the summer and see them, 
And for years it was like this. And so to kind of see it all and it was nice. It was emotional for me. I was like, okay, good. And so I guess maybe that emotional aspect even got that, to me and I thought, it's over. Even that I, I, I felt <laughs> took too long. I thought they were done at Civil War. They 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 could have been. They should have been yeah. done at Civil War. But and Endgame, money. it took too long. It was yeah. like the people that started watching this and were excited about it have grown up and had children. We're done. We're finished. But like even Chris Hemsworth and even Robert Downey Jr. and all these actors, they were done. They're they done. were done. They were like, Robert Downey I'm, Jr. is done. He That's why done he's dead. After Avengers one. That's yes. why they had to pay him like fifty two million dollars oh per my film after God. that. Because he was like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. He's like, I'm done. I don't want to make these films anymore. But they basically said, we'll pay you this much. He's like, how much? He's like, well, here's, here's how much. How much do you want? Let me tell you where I think it's going. It doesn't end, because here's the thing about Marvel, you have a bunch, not just like the the Avengers is like the flagship, but you have other teams of superheroes coming together. And each of these superheroes has like their own series behind them, telling them how they're going to get there, right? They're doing it right now with characters like Falcon and Moon Knight. You know, they have their own series now on Netflix and they're going through these like Bucky, right? They're bringing these minor characters now together into teams and they're trying to build these teams up into like another minor version of the Avengers. I don't think there's any way they're going to hit that same peak that they did with the Avengers films, but they're going to try. Yeah, with the, with no. these smaller things, and they're gonna break in some dollars still, but I don't know how much they can still milk out of it because nobody yeah. looks at Moon Knight and thinks this is the character I want to follow all the time. Well, like Iron Man, I think had it's like the same thing with like a lot like Iron Man, Hulk, Captain America. These are like the most famous uh, of Marvel's characters, right? They kind of have the most. Uh, um, if I can mode. expand a little bit. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the Netflix runs of these film of these series like Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, The Punisher, Daredevil. Daredevil, I've seen. And the Daredevil, Punisher was fantastic. Daredevil was fantastic. I haven't seen Punisher, but I know John Bernthal playing the Punisher is incredible. I, I, I've heard he's he's yes, quite good. He's I mean, very good. The TV's different though. I think television is Luke generally Cage. better. Like the better like television is in this day and age. I think. The best writing, at least for film, is more on the on the TV side. It's not really happening in films. It's more happening on in television. I think, yeah, you know, pushing boundaries, um, more kind of theatrical. Because I I think a big thing, the, the big advantage that TV has is time. You know, you have ten hours to get to know a character yes. in a season compared yeah. to two, and so. Uh, the, but still, I, it's yeah. not as potent. It's not right. as potent as seeing them on the big screen. Yeah that big deal right it's a different experience for sure and and uh i do love films and i like tv as well you know but what I think I, right now recently tv's been you know doing, what i went back and watched recently better. i went back and i watched all of the x-men films do you remember those the the one uh, it was the x-men directed by x-men 2 um, x-men last name. stand and then there was x-men first class x-men Price, you know Price something was it? Uh, yeah something like that um, Wasn't he charged with like pedophilia or something like that? I don't know about that. I mean, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think the director for those films, he was charged with, uh, and that's why, no, they brought him back though, or something like that. Well, that'd be interesting. But uh, yeah, no, I went back and I watched the X-Men films and it was like, they did a half decent job of building up their own kind of Avengers through the X-Men films. But that was like in the era before the Avengers really took off. Brian Singer. Ryan Singer. Ryan Singer. They weren't awful. A couple of them were very good. Days of Future Past was fantastic. People loved First Class. 
the movies in between there were not good. Apocalypse was not that great. Um, the Phoenix one after that, not that great. Yeah. But there were a couple of good ones. Logan, that same cinematic universe. Logan was incredible. People loved Logan. But yeah. that was when Marvel took the chance to say, we're going to Lo- make the R-rated film. Logan in recent memory is probably my favorite Marvel film. But you know what doesn't give me faith? The first Deadpool movie, really good. The second Deadpool movie, trash. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I saw both. And that's yeah. the issue with it, right? Because if they do something right for the fans, they make it properly. That's the first Deadpool. The second one is a cash grab. The third one is guaranteed to be a cash grab. Well, I think the second one, the the first one, it was, they got this new director. I don't think he had made, like, I remember looking up, because I, I always go straight, like, who who's going to be, like, the main, the guy, like, yeah. you know, saying where the shots go, calling all most of the shots and stuff, like, who's the director? And I remember looking him up, I'm like, oh, this guy's got, like, almost nothing under his plate. He was a VFX artist. That was his background. Yeah. And I think he made, like, a short film or something. I'm like, I'm, this guy doesn't really have a feature film. It's kind of crazy that they were giving such a big project. And actually, they didn't give him much of a budget. The first Deadpool film only had a $50 million budget. It was actually kind of charming how contained it was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, $50 million, $50 million for a Deadpool movie is not a lot. Like, compared yeah. to, like, the average Iron Man or the average Spider-Man movie is going to have at least $120 million, right? So it's like, for for this Deadpool movie, they give it to this director who doesn't really have a lot on his plate in terms of directing credentials. He's He's got a lot of you know vfx background but not really much in directing obviously ryan reynolds was one of the producers he really wanted to make this oh yeah film happen no the i think reason why the, the fans wanted happening. ryan reynolds without yes. ryan reynolds there is no deadpool film, yes right yeah and so it's like okay which if i can put a small note yeah. in that idea of ryan reynolds playing deadpool goes all the way back to x-men origins which was a hor- like terrible portrayal of deadpool in that film people hated it well, they, but they love the idea of Ryan Reynolds being Wade Wilson. But they they make fun of that. Yes. In the de- which is oh, hilarious. Yeah. It's, and it's like so very, good. It's very redeeming. It's very cathartic. Yes. That they actually did that in the Deadpool films. And I was very pleasantly surprised. I thought, wow, they did like considering the budget that they had, mm-hmm. and and the fact that it didn't really seem like the studio believed a lot in it. They were just kind of like, okay, you know what? We'll take this risk. Fifty million dollars. Here you go. Make it huge success. Makes a ton of money. People are people like all these people who didn't know about Deadpool. Now they love Deadpool. All the fans of Deadpool were like really pleased with it. I was really happy. And then they they basically they don't bring that direct. They fire him basically. They they'd don't bring him back to make thought the second. They'd like the oh we can do it film. with the second one. No, and they didn't bring the same spirit. As soon as I realized that they essentially fired that director, they didn't bring him back. Did nothing to bring him. Actually, I'm pretty sure they fired him. Uh, going into the second film, like why he did such a great job with the first one, he proved it's nonsensical, himself, and he did it on a on a fairly tight budget, considering you know what he what he was able to do in that film, and I can't remember who they brought in to do the the, the second one, but yeah, you're right, the second one sucked. The second one was not nearly as funny, not nearly as good as the first, and it was just kind of it was just very light. Like the sec, uh, I don't know, a lot of a lot of beats were were, were missing. I I think it was the the kid. What was his name? I forgot. He was really annoying. Um, he kind of, and he was sort of the. He was the same kid from the Taika Waititi yeah, he movies, was, but like he was really obnoxious. I did in that find film. him very well. He was obnoxious in the other film that he did with Taika Waititi too, but it kind of yeah. worked there. It didn't work here. No, it didn't. Yeah. It was just the whole thing felt kind of strange. And like when you have a character like Deadpool, you have so many storylines, so many, so many things you could pull, and you choose to do this. Like Deadpool, no, I'll be, I'll be yeah. real. 
Josh Brolin as Cable. By the way, there's like a, a huge stretch of comics, a comic series in uh, in the Deadpool run that's Cable and Deadpool. And they're, uh, they play a fantastic duo. And then bringing on Josh Brolin, again, Marvel picking a great casting choice. Yeah. It's Those two nailed it. The kid yeah. pissed us off to no end. And then the, like, a domino being brought on, it's like, it's very, you know, cheesy, the way they did it. Deadpool 2 felt like it should have been Deadpool 5. It's like the kind of, the kind of story that they told, at least for me, felt like it's when you're, you sort of told all the major stories, and now you're kind of getting to the smaller stuff, or at mm-hmm. least feeling like, okay, what else do we do? Oh, we'll do this. That's kind of what it felt like to me. I'm like, you're, you're on your second film. Like, the second, like, this is, you know, you, there's still, like, major story and plots to to you know things that you could do and there's so much material to pull from and they it was just i felt like it was strange that they ended up going with uh i'm gonna tell anybody who likes inconsequential for uh, that's what it seemed like very inconsequential story anybody who likes deadpool i will tell you simply that the movies as much as we love ryan reynolds playing deadpool it doesn't hold a candle to the comics because in the comics you're watching this psychotic trip of this guy trying to figure out what the meaning of his own life is, despite the fact that it's all torn away from him because he can't die, but is in a constant state of dying. That he cannot make any friends because he's too weird, and that he wanders the world literally hated by everybody, and is constantly aware that he is the jester of the Marvel Universe. It is the f- it's, it's the most depressing and the most maddening, but also the funniest story in all of Marvel Comics. But they don't, there's no way to bring that out, even in a TV show. Right. Right. If you gave him six seasons, he couldn't do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I haven't read the Deadpool comics like you have, but um, I think staying true to the character um, is really important. And so would you, would you say that they kind of strayed away from that in the second film? The first film did well. The second film, Ryan Reynolds, I have no problem with. The character I have no problem with. I think they did the problem. What they made was the fatal Fast and Furious mistake. They kept saying family. <laughs> they kept saying family and right, pretended yeah, like that yeah, was yeah. A, fe- a theme. And yeah. it wasn't. It was really family. poorly done. Yeah. That's pretty much <laughs> what they did. It was very forced. They were trying to build up their own, again, Avengers. That's the mistake. But it's a thing. The movie franchise is such a big money maker. That, that every studio has to try. Ever since Harry Potter. Right? Because Harry Potter did a series of movies. Lord of the Rings did a series of movies. Right? Anything that can do a series of movies, we want to watch every one. And so it makes a ton of movies. The Hunger Games. Right. Twilight. Yeah. Freaking Maze Runner, I think, did that. Yeah. A lot of these right. films, they do the same thing. I All I want to see in this world is John Wick 4. Even that, that's a franchise <laughs> I really they're, they're am John into. Wick 4. Yes, yeah. and I'm eagerly awaiting. We'll be right yeah. back here to talk about John Wick 4. <laughs> Trust me there, but yeah. it's these other series. Like, Have you seen the new Mummy? No. Right, so there's the old Brendan Fraser Mummy series. Yeah. They do it like, I think they do three three movies there. Poor guy got alopecia. The first two are good. The third one, not so much. But... The new Mummy reboot with Tom Cruise tries to establish a cinematic universe and flops. 
Oh yeah, Tom Cruise is in that. Yeah. I totally forgot. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Not a great series. They weren't <laughs> gonna do a good job. They kind of in fact, yeah. it's their attempt at establishing a cinematic universe that ruins it. What is a film that you are most looking forward to? Well, I mean, aside from John Wick 4. Right. <sighs> There's some films I need to catch up on. Mm-hmm. I need to watch um everything everywhere all at once. Yes, yes. I need to actually, watch that. You know what? We 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 can do a we can watch that together and we can do a review for that. That's that true. actually looks like a good one. Um that Jojo Rabbit we need to do. Right. Okay. But there's also a couple of like if we're talking about the Forest Creek podcast now, um there's a couple of other stories I've had in mind to do. And I'm thinking of I want to do the story of Prometheus. And if we're talking about gods and mythology and all that stuff, I would love to dig into some old Greek myth. Bring it out. Because one of the things is like, I've recently listened to a couple of, a few books. Um, Stephen Fry, wonderful British actor. Yeah, Canadian um, actor, yeah. And fantastic orator, by the way, right. and wonderful writer. Does uh, a trilogy of books for Mythos, Heroes, and then Troy. And he goes over like the highlights of Greek myth. He does a beautiful job of it. Neil Gaiman does a Norse mythology book as well. I've listened to both of them. And the interesting thing is like, they're wildly different in the terms because you hear about something like, um, you know, Stephen Fry explaining where, you know, the terms for, you know, Prometheus, his name means forethought. And the idea that like the characters is gifted with prophecy, pro as in before Theus, Themius, thought. And then his brother's Epimetheus, where the word epic comes from, but it's the idea of lunging into something without thinking mm. in that sense. So Greek mythology has this way of illustrating every little tidbit of the universe that we understand mm. around us. But then by contrast, Norse mythology is all just like a couple of stories that don't really connect very well. It's like, why are there ties in the world? Well, one day, a giant tried to trick Thor into drinking out of a horn and said the ocean was in there. And Thor drank so much of the ocean that there was a little so bit of So you're missing. saying that when people ask how babies are made and there's like this bird that has like a baby. Yeah, know, the like stork. A, yeah, yeah, the yeah, stork. Karen. And then it kind of brings it and leaves it at your door in a basket. It's like, so that's... That's, that's, the, that's, that's Norse, Norse mythology. That's a Norse mythology. Okay. <laughs> it's not literally that, but it's like, that's their way of telling okay. the story. <laughs> Whereas you hear from like, uh, you know, the Greek mythology would bring things like Erebus and Nyx. That's night and darkness. And before that, there was literally chaos. And then things like... Um, the way that time starts in Greek mythology is... Um, Uranus, the sky father, sky, and then Earth, Gaia, begin to make love. And as they make love, that like literally begins the motion of the Earth spinning and thereby begins time. Oh my gosh. In some sense. If they stop banging, time stops. In some sense. But you know what's really funny is that Uranus, where we get the Uranus, but also um, the idea is that after Uranus was castrated by... uh, Kronos, his son, who becomes the god of time, um, he's so filled with hate and anger, and he's cast down by Kronos to live in the depths of Gaia. And his hatred is so powerful that it kills anything it touches, and that's where we get the word uranium. Because um, if you find uranium, it kills you immediately. It's so full of hate. <laughs> 
right in that sense. That's fascinating. So what 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 uh, what book is this again? This is uh, this is just Greek mythology in general, but like, aren't you getting um, this from Stephen Fry's Mythos? Okay, Stephen Fry does mythos. it very well. So, so this is like he's just did research and he's explicating it. Yeah, he okay. does a beautiful job throughout it. Everything from I hope I wish I hope he does the Odyssey someday because he does it from the very beginning of Greek mythology like Homer's, to like Homer's. Uh... Yeah, Homer's Odyssey yeah, because okay. he gets to he gets through Homer's Troy, but he doesn't get to Homer's Odyssey okay. because that's pretty much where the Greek myth kind of ends. Well, it's the uh, it's the summit. Let's say Homer's work is sort of the summit of, of that mythology. It's a great, phenomenal piece of work. Homer's Iliad is, it's, I mean, it's, it's one of yeah. the greatest works of Western literature for well, sure. We're definitely going to come back uh, on the Fourth Greek podcast, and we're going to talk about Prometheus and the Promethean myth because I, I it has a lot of very interesting implications about human comp- consciousness. Okay, I'd be and that story. Very interested. Um, and I also want to try to relate it to Prometheus Bound, which I've been reading. It's a poem by Aeschylus. It's basically like a little play that takes place after Prometheus is chained to a rock for giving humanity the gift of fire. And it's all these gods showing up and like they're expressing their woes and like exchanging sympathies and telling their stories about how much of a tyrant Zeus is. Um, it doesn't really tell the story as well. So I'll try to give my own rendition of it on the Forest Creek podcast, but yeah, it's just one of the many stories we want to go over because that's one of the things we are most interested in here. Stories. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what we do. Stay tuned for our movie reviews, game reviews, ancient mythology reviews, <laughs> and other stuff coming out your way soon, including our website, which we are working on now, as I've been saying for like the last four podcasts. I get the commercial going. <laughs> Plenty of stuff coming. Um, always exciting, always fun. Fun. My name is Ralph. My name is AD. And this has been the Forest Creek Podcast. Have a good night. Have a good night.